This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Visit betterhelp.com slash Padilla because sometimes existing is exhausting. Warning, this episode contains discussion of suicide and the gruesome acts committed by serial killers. My name's Anthony Padilla and I spent a day with criminologists. We'll uncover what it's like to sit face to face with some of the most notorious serial killers in the world. How it feels to be told by a cannibal that they want to eat and we'll break down what truly separates the common person from the most sadistic serial killer. By the end of this video, we'll find out if these criminologists find their work entirely gratifying or if they wish they'd never stepped into this line of work in the first place after their constant exposure to the absolute darkest side of humanity. Hello, Laura. Hey. Scott. Hi, how are you? Amanda. Hi, how are you? Can you define what a criminologist does? Criminology is the study of criminals and criminal behavior. You're looking for patterns, you're looking for correlations, and you're looking at the sociology and also the psychology of crime to hopefully prevent crime in the future. For me, it's about research, it's about interviewing serial killers, it's about going through uh, the nuances of, of their life. So I spend a lot of time um, either face-to-face -face or telephones going through interview tapes and going through body language and nonverbal and verbal cues. So I've spoken to a whole gamut of the across the genre of the term serial killer. I go deep into their cases. I get the police files. I get the court transcripts. I talk to their family members, their friends even. I do a complete deep dive. What I seek to do is try to debunk many stereotypes and misinformation that are out there in the world about crime and, and murder. What have been some of the biggest cases that you've worked on? Dennis Rader, who called himself Bind, Torture, Kill, and David Berkowitz, who called himself the Son of Sam. Bobby Joe Long in Florida, Arthur Shawcross in New York, David Berkowitz, spoken to uh, Charles Manson, Richard Ramirez. Well, everybody knows me for, obviously, the Toolbox Killers. People have said that the Toolbox Killers may be the most sadistic serial killers that they've ever heard of. I've interviewed over 50 serial killers, but I've never seen that level of sadism. Bittaker and Norris had a van. They would kidnap the girls and bring them up to Sangi Roll Mountain. They had a toolbox under a makeshift bed in the van, and they would use the tools for torture, and I mean brutal, brutal torture, and it was all audio taped. It's now not released to the public. It was held in the FBI. It's used for training purposes. The lead detective on this case killed himself over this tape. The content on those tapes, the sounds on those tapes were so haunting. It's caused people to take their own lives. Once you hear something or see something like that, there's no going back. Do you remember the first time that you worked with a serial killer? The first serial killer I ever met with was uh, Lawrence Bittaker. It was so awkward. Once they take the cuffs off him and your padlock, we just kind of like stared at each other. We started just talking and I remember I asked him, I go, why are you a serial killer and why am I not a serial killer? He just looked at me and he was like, some people like broccoli, some people don't. Do you want to kill? And I was like, no, I've actually no desire at all. And he was like, that's your answer. Can you describe what it feels like to be sitting in a room face to face with someone that you know has brutally tortured and killed so many people? It's very jarring. You are in a tiny little dog style 
cage with these serial killers. Do you feel like you're risking your life each time you're going there? Or have you just gotten so used to it that it's just like, whatever, this is my job? Yeah, now it's just like, I'm going to brunch or breakfast. I build that real authentic trust and rapport. So when, once I'm in a cage with them, you know, it's friendly. What approach do you take when talking to a serial killer? Every time I go in, I'm just kind of like a blank slate. When you're there to truly help, they can sense that. Once they start talking, I mean, they're going to keep going and going and you know, sometimes you can even just sit back and they're going to hang themselves with their own tongue, reveal stuff maybe they didn't intentionally want to tell you or try to hold back on. It's going to emerge. It scares me sometimes to think, am I a psychopath? And that's why I get through to them. But it's also about knowing what to ask certain killers and to know that that is, is going to be the entrance to a, a long-term dialogue. Some of these I, I've spoken to for 20, 30 years. We actually have a clip from one of your interviews that hasn't been publicly released elsewhere where you are talking to a serial killer and almost playing some mind games by joking around and making the subject matter seem really light to, to see if he will back himself up into a corner and kind of admit to these things that you're that he was accused of, right? Yeah, I'll just play it from my phone on speaker. Did I start these rumors? Was it me? Holy cow. <laughs> it's hard to, no, it's just hard to argue uh, when you're coming when you have a human breast when you're turning yourself into a police department and they have oh, the mutilated bodies. Like I know. I was like, hey, this doesn't belong to me. <laughs> and now here I am. Well you had human remains on you. Uh, that's what they say. So I was walking down the street minding my own business, right? Oh, and somebody <laughs> and just landed a human breast in your pocket? I know, I know. That's what happened? And I gave it to the cops. What's a, what's a, what's a good citizen supposed to do? Oh, that makes perfect and sense. I, it all makes sense. Now. I know. I'm totally a good Samaritan. Yes. Let's yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> Who's playing games now? You're very clever, yeah. I'm trying to keep up with you right now. So he turned himself in with a dismembered human breast, human breast in yeah, his pocket. Severed breast in his in his Ziploc bag in his pocket. He literally like slapped it on the desk when he walked into the police station. He was scared that they weren't going to believe him. And he, what he's told me, and he brought literally physical evidence. I use the dark humor a lot with them to make them more comfortable. I've actually gotten a couple confessions from using dark humor. Do you think that's because it makes these heinous acts seem a little bit more light because you're able to joke about it? They feel safer in a sense to like go deeper about their crimes and their actions. They they almost feel like, okay, well she's making, you know, jokes about it. So they actually start to open up more and more and more. You've gotten a lot of information from serial killers that others have not been able to get out of them at all. Like the Toolbox Killers, for example, you actually had a map drawn that pinpointed where certain bodies were buried. It was about 15 months. We've changed over 100 maps back and forth trying to figure out where the girls were. And it was actually really surreal because I guess because we had talked about it for nearly like two years and he had pinpointed everything and I knew exactly where to go. So the girls still have metal on them. So my next thing I did was I got a metal detector and I brought the metal detector up on the mountain rose with Andrea's sister and we got a metal detector hit on the exact spot that he gave. It's pretty wild that he 
can have the memory of the exact pinpointed location on a map and know how to describe it in such detail that you can find it. Just as we have that memory recall for like a significant time in our lives or day in our lives, they have the same recall for their murders. Are there any shocking takeaways or realizations that you've had since working in criminology and with serial killers? I just remember the first time I picked up the textbook about Bideker and Norris and I dropped the book thinking, oh my God, are these guys human? They're demons. And then I go on to death row and I'm talking to him and we start talking, I get to know him and I get to know his life. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I can see how this happened, this happened, this happened. It kind of took away that disillusion of, you know, this person's a monster, but rather a very, very, you know, hurt, flawed human being who took his anger out on the world. Not all psychopaths become serial killers and not all serial killers are psychopaths, but there is a correlation there. It's been estimated that perhaps 40 to 50% of all serial killers are in fact psychopaths. Psychopathy is um, it, it is, is innate, that you were born with a different brain that it functions differently. But even then, something has to happen. Something has to trigger it. Psychopaths don't just suddenly wake up one day and say, today's a great day to become a serial killer. What are some of the commonalities that you find between different serial killers? It's not like A plus B equals C. We do see those that had a massive childhood trauma, uh, those that were abused by parents, those that um, were attacked as children by strangers. That sort of imprints on them a, a warped sense of what reality is and they feel that they have a loss of control in their own lives especially growing up when they should have been being able to have that innocence it's been taken so they then need to get that back and how they do it is by inflicting the pain that they're feeling on others often that they may uh, select a, a victim type that matches what they went through as a child so they might kill children because of their childhood others might have a disgust with sex and so they would kill sex workers some just do it because that person looked at them wrong or walked past them the biggest thing i see with the childhood is neglect the ones who have an absentee father neglect father abusive father they target men and then same with the mother if the mother break down i'll see them targeting more women why do you think it is that people are so fascinated by serial killers it's simply a, a, a um whodunit at one level it's just a, it's a it's a mystery story you know that, that that compels us and and intrigues us there is a fascination with once again this concept of of evil and the horrible things that these individuals do we want to get close to it we want to understand it we want to we want to try to wrap our minds around it but we want to do it in a very safe environment so these tv shows allow us to do that serial killers have become pop culture icons son of sam killer clown ted bundy the zodiac these are almost brand names that are that are indelible in our in our popular culture and i sought to understand why once you delve into this and, and go down the rabbit hole it's unbelievable the things that you find serial killers are similar to the way the public looks at great white sharks. And what do they have in common? I would say three things. Both of them are very rare, they're very exotic, and they're deadly. And there's this tremendous fascination. There's also that side, that empathetic side of trying to understand what it would really feel like to be so helpless in such an unimaginable, distressing way. Certain individuals are drawn to this true crime programming and serial killer programming 
because they identify with the victim. And I think this is particularly true of women. The true crime audience skews heavily toward female. And I believe it's because women in particular identify with the victims in these stories. Because in the vast majority of stories, the, the, the victims are, you know, are, are women. We've all probably said at one time or another, oh, my boss, he's driving me crazy. I could just kill that guy. But we don't really do it. The thought stops there. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't go to action. But I think there, there, there are many of us who do wonder under an extreme circumstance, under duress, what might I be capable of? What have been some of the most bizarre situations that you found yourself in? This is a picture of me standing next to David Berkowitz. And we are standing in front of, which if you can tell, it's it's a, a painted mural of a beach scene. And I was given the opportunity to have a um, old fashioned Polaroid picture taken with, with David Berkowitz. Here we are in a maximum security fortress prison and I'm having my little memorabilia picture taken like I'm at Disneyland. There was a meet and greet where you got to choose the backdrop and take a picture with a serial killer that is now, you know, immortalized in many ways. He's like, like a, like a mascot. Isn't that wild? There's things like Arthur Shawcross, who after many years of, of talking to him, he wanted to eat me. He actually sent me a jambalaya uh, recipe where I was the meat protein in it. He was going to take several pounds from my buttocks and cook that in the jambalaya. It's not a meal I would ever eat purely because that's scarred on me. No more jambalaya for Amanda? No, 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 thanks. I've had killers ask if they can move into my house um, when they get released. I've had marriage proposals. That's how endeared they feel to you and, and how much you butter them up to, to tell you all their deepest, darkest secrets. They literally think that you're gonna get married and they're gonna bring more roommates? Bobby Joe Long pro proposed to me twice and then when I said no, he actually asked me to go to his executions. I don't know what you put, yeah. Close yep. to a wedding yep. to some people. That's how my life goes. You tend to feel a lot of empathy for the victims and those affected by all this. Was it always that way? I found it easy to sort of step away from serial killers and leave them and go away and come back. Um, but I lost my husband. Uh, he, he took his own life um, just a couple of years ago. To know what he went through in those last moments and to know how long those moments lasted is, is horrific to even think about. But it made me realize um, of that butterfly effect of someone's death because though we talk about the victims being killed, it's the others around them, it's their families, it's their partners, it's their children who have to continue with that grieving process. Do you think that it's pure evil? Before we learn more about that, I'd like to thank you for watching these sponsor segments because without them, many of these episodes would not be possible at all. So huge thank you to Purple for their continued support and sponsoring this series. Purple mattresses, of course, provide incredible comfort while you sleep by using what they call the grid, this revolutionary ventilated design that allows air to actually flow through it so you can stay cool all night without flipping your pillow halfway through the night. One of the biggest things that prevents me from being able to get a thorough night sleep for once in my goddamn life is the position that my head lays when it's on the pillow and Purple Pillow allows me to not feel like I just got my neck run over in the morning. Because the grid supports and cushions my head in a harmoniously beautiful way that I had not previously found. 
And right now you'll support this series and get 10% off any order of $200 or more by going to purple.com slash Padilla and using promo code Padilla. I'm only gonna say this one more time, so you better listen up, okay? That's purple.com slash Padilla. And with promo code Padilla, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply, of course, and it's already gone, so you should have listened. But you fucking just sat there staring at the screen with the blank look in your face. You could have been taking notes. You should have been taking notes. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp, for their continued partnership. If you've been keeping up with this series, you know that therapy has been really beneficial in shaping who I am today by allowing me to have empathy for my younger self and therefore understand who I am today a little bit more. But therapy can be customized to whatever's right for you and can be useful in providing tools to help with motivation or feelings of depression, anxiety, stress, insecurity, or whatever else you might specifically need. BetterHelp has been continuing to improve throughout the years and screens all their therapists to ensure that they have experience and that they're certified and licensed and provides customized therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone or speak over the phone if that's not something that you're comfortable with. As many of you probably found out by now, therapy can be expensive and the price of finding a therapist that you like and connect with can be overwhelming, which is why BetterHelp offers a more affordable alternative to in-person therapy where you can start communicating with your therapist in less than 48 hours. So thank you to BetterHelp who are giving I Spent a Day with viewers and listeners of the podcast 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Padilla. Okay, I will say it one more time. So listen very fucking closely. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Padilla. Now back to the world of criminology. Do you think that it's pure evil? They aren't evil. They are cowardly. They are reviled. They are um, people that are on the fringes of society without us actually knowing it. They fit in, but it's because of that manipulation that they can... They can live in their own fantasy world and then they can compartmentalize it, put it away, so then they can continue with their normal lives. So if they were evil, they would be, um, you know, an animal in a cage because it's un it's uncontrolled, but they aren't. They are very controlled and that's why we can't call them evil. There is so many other facets of their personality and their mental uh, makeup that actually um, makes it far more wide-reaching than that. I actually think the label of evil is a very dangerous and ultimately not useful term. I think it's much more uh, useful to understand the causality of this and what drove these individuals to do these evil actions in the first place. When you put the label of evil on something, it sort of wraps it up, has the, you know, the label attached to it. I can put it aside now. I don't need to think about it anymore. No trying to understand it. It's black and white. I know that it's good versus bad and it's bad and that's all there is to it. And therefore, it's not so frightening anymore because I, I know the truth. The truth is it's just evil. What is it about being a criminologist that brings you the most joy? Talk to like the victim's families. Tears are just joy because you're able to, you know, bring this to the family. I mean, that's just remarkable and incredible in and of itself. But even with working with the serial killers, you know, you see those breakthrough moments, those transformational moments or when those things click. You're having these crazy, very profound, deep experiences. Do it in a way that you can actually help the world. And that's the biggest mission is to shine a light on the darkness. If there's anyone watching who has lost a loved one to a violent crime and feels a deep sense of injustice, they feel completely forgotten by the justice system, is there anything you want to say to them? 
I always say to people, pot bang. Bang as loud as you can. Just keep banging and banging as loud and as for as long as you can. You really have to be really, really proactive and be really aggressive. So reach out to all the experts, get to the news stations, podcasts, YouTube, everything. Do whatever you can possibly to get it out there. What do you think is the biggest misconception about criminologists? People often think that I am out there with a gun and a badge chasing the bad guys. Oh, you're not a serial killer hunter? <laughs> wow, I thought I was interviewing yeah. someone else. I'm not Van Helsing chasing Dracula, <laughs> you know? My uh, weapon is the uh, computer and the pen. You can listen to me on the Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions podcast, and you can also visit my Memento Mori Death Museum. That's a traveling exhibition. You can follow me on Instagram, Laura Brand, Siren of San Quentin. The Toolbox Killer is the documentary. And my book will be coming out soon. It's called What Hell Is Like? The Untold Story of the Toolbox Killers. Check out my work on Twitter. I have a crime blog called Wicked Deeds. My popular best-selling book, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers, available on Amazon. Well, there you have it. I spent a day with criminologists and I realize how, despite it being tempting to write something off as just pure evil, a human connection is required to understand the mind of those we disagree with most, and how media coverage can guide our interpretation of an event without any focus on the way these events affect the victims and their loved ones. I have a Zodiac Killer costume here. You have a Zodiac Killer costume? I do, I do, so I have the hood. Do you need me to get up and get it? Yeah, oh, I do, yeah. I need you to go, go up and get it. Well, you have it right there? So that's the head, and it's got the Zodiac. I had that made uh, for my museum, so with the other giant heads I have of serial killers. So people can actually cuddle up to these killers at my museum. So it, it makes for a great photo because these are so realistic and lifelike. There's John Wayne Gacy uh, and Richard Ramirez and Ted Bundy and Albert Fish and a head and there's Manson at the end. Oh my dear Lord. Funny story is I had a friend come over the other day that had no idea what my house looked like and he saw these heads and just didn't ask. And I thought, okay, if you didn't ask then you're like traumatized and I won't and I'm not gonna talk about yeah. it. <laughs>